Hey, it's Georgia here. Please note that this episode features themes of domestic violence, death, emotional abuse, sexual assault and violence against women that may be alarming to some listeners. Hello and welcome to another podcast episode of UN House Scotland series, connecting women's voices on climate justice, perspectives from Scotland and around the world. My name is Georgia Saiti and I'm a master's student in intern with UN House on the Climate and Gender Team. Today I'm joined by three amazing women, Natalia, Angela and Linda, to discuss about the links between women and the environment, but also gender-based violence in the environment. Natalia, Angela and Linda, thank you for being here today. So instead of me introducing you um, to them, I thought I'll just give them a chance to introduce themselves. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Angela. Would you, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, everybody, and thank you very much for the invitation, Georgia. It's lovely to see everybody. Um, I'm uh, My day job is with Glasgow Caledonian University. I'm the programme leader for our Masters in Human Rights. And I know Georgia um, as a student on our Masters in Climate Justice, where we work together on the Human Rights, Gender and Development module. Um, I would say I'm an activist and academic on gender equality and human rights. Um, and I'm delighted to be here and to, to be part of this conversation. Well, thanks, Angela, so much. That was some amazing background info for uh, your information. Uh, Natalia, would you like to go next? Yes, of course. Thank you so much for having me today. And um, so I'll introduce myself. Um, I'm Natalia. I work in the violence against women sector in Scotland since three years ago. Um, initially, I was working for the Scottish Women's Rights Centre, um, but recently I moved into the Women's Support Project, both uh, working with the different forms of gender-based violence. Um, I also do some work uh, with a charity called Refeo, which uh, does work with refugees and asylum seekers around uh, employment and education. Um, but one of the reasons that brings me here and the main one I want to bring in today is uh, the work I've been doing with uh, an organization of Amazonian women uh, in Ecuador called Ashinoaka. So uh, during COP, I had the opportunity to uh, welcome two women into my home. And since then, I've been supporting them as a media contact and translator. So I'm hoping to bring in some of their voices without trying to speak for them, but just to bring on some of the experiences they have told me about. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you have joined us, Natalia, tonight as we embark on our conversation later on for the connection between women and the environment. Lida, saved you for last. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like? It's because to I'm us- an attorney. It's because I'm an attorney, right? <laughs> Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, actually, I have two uh, areas that I've gotten into that you'll all be interested in. I started out as a law clerk for the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco in 1978, 1979. Those were the formative years. Um, I was a prosecutor in Northern California for 32 years. Uh, Part of my years in serving in that capacity, I made offers uh, did the charging language, uh, and much, unfortunately, much of the crimes that happened here in, dealt with domestic violence. Uh, but I am proud to say that I was with the group of prosecutors that became career prosecutors and fought for victims' rights, fought for 
victims' rights regarding sexual assault crimes, sex crimes of any kind, uh, homicide, kidnapping, you name it, and we were there fighting for it in terms of victims' rights and in terms of justice being done. Uh, I retired and joined Soroptimist International, and in the capacity as a Soroptimist International uh, member, I am on the advocacy, I'm an advocacy consultant for the Soroptimist International President, Marie McGuire. Uh, my experience that you might be interested in is that I got interested in the climate crisis, and in my opinion, I think that is the singularly most important issue of not only our lifetime, but I think of the planet's uh, survival. A planet will survive, but whether or not we and all the species and beauty that we love now will survive, I believe is an open question. And toward that, um, I have done research uh, and spanning from the 1940s till the present day on any issue regarding the climate crisis and the environment, because I wanted to know a historical perspective of why it's taken us this long. And I, I, I think I've reached a conclusion on that. Uh, the other thing you would probably be interested to know is that I'm on the board of the Alliance, which is based at the UN Vienna. And um, I have done speeches about the migration issue, issue entitled They're Running for Their Lives. That was in New York. I've done speeches on trafficking or presented in, in uh, trafficking uh, issues in New York years ago, and I most recently um, did a presentation on how you tie in the climate crisis with uh, trafficking, early uh, child enforced marriage, and pretty much any other violence against women. Uh, this was several years ago before it became a hot topic that it is now. So that is my background in a nutshell. Okay, thank you so much. Wow. I couldn't be more excited to have you three with me today. And I will start our conversation by reading you the very first paragraph of the Women's Rights Are Human Rights uh, by the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner. Uh, that is a paper that was written in 2014. And it starts by stating the following. Attaining equality between women and men and eliminating all forms of discrimination against women are fundamental human rights and United Nations values. Women around the world, nevertheless, regularly suffer violations of their human rights throughout their lives, and realizing women's human rights has not always been a priority. Achieving equality between women and men requires a comprehensive understanding of the ways in which women experience discrimination and are denied equality so as to develop appropriate strategies to eliminate such discrimination. And I'm looking at you now, Angela. Would you like to kick off this conversation by um, just giving us your thoughts um, on this, that women's rights are human's rights? Um, not normally stumped for something to say, but it's always difficult to be the first. Um, I think, yes, absolutely, women's rights are human rights. Um, the, the separation of the two, I think, is, is deeply unhelpful um, in terms of, of the realisation of rights and the securing of, of um, not just equality, but, but um, that you know something even more sort of fundamental in a way that that recognition and validation of 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 women um 
in a more um, sort of technical definition, you know, women's rights are economic, social, political, and cultural. And women's economic, social, political, civil, and cultural liberation, um, autonomy, and empowerment are all enshrined in law. But they are also and should also be fundamental social and political and economic values. Um, and it's those values that that should drive um, our collective. Ad- uh, endeavour to to realise that vision that you just read out there of attaining equality, eliminating discrimination. Um, but I think we need to talking about equality. Um, we need to be, I think, really cited on removing the structural constraints that result in and continue to produce and reproduce the inequalities and discrimination that women experience the world over. It's those institutional, that institutional thinking, the process of lawmaking that Linda has talked to us about already and is so familiar with, that reinforces um, societal norms that produce and reproduce inequalities. And so being equal to men well, being equal to men, well, there's that famous you know, sticker, you know, women who, who seek equality lack ambition. Um, and so it's that equality, if that equality is part of a transformational project, you know, the initial the kind of original feminist project, in a sense, that transformation of the status quo, um, where, you know, women and men um, secure, you know, greater, you know, improved improved rights and, and well-being. Um, and I suppose the other thing as well is that um, the separation of thinking about gender equality and human rights as two separate um, but parallel uh, pathways to equality, I think is unhelpful because it reinforces, um, well, if we're talking about the sustainable development goals, then we're only talking about goal five. No, we're not. We're talking about all the goals because gender equality and the realisation of of women's social, economic, political and civil rights is central to um, the right to clean air, the right to decent work, the right to um, housing, peaceful and strong institutions have to be about delivering gender equality. Mm-hmm. And so that institutional transformational turn is, I think, really what I would be aiming for and to see how that vision you've just read out um, should be realised. Yeah, so it's fair to say that there is still gender equality that still exists, unfortunately, even in 2022. And climate change does not make things easier. Um, Climate change, and this is something that is taken from the United Nations website, refers to long-term shifts in temperatures, weather patterns. These shifts may be natural, but since the 1800s, human activities have been the main driver of climate change, primarily due to burning fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas. And Natalia, over to you now. What do you think is the connection between climate change and gender inequality? Uh, that's another broad, broad question. Um, but I think it's uh, how, where to start I, again is, is the, the, the thing. Um, I think it definitely is creating or compounding inequalities that we've seen like that, that have existed for women for many, many years. And adding to that, I mean, the fact that the majority of people who are in poverty are women is one of the key, you know, key key things. And and the impacts of women uh, of climate change are women are at the forefront of climate change. So 
Here I would like to, to bring in some of the examples of what I've been hearing from, from the women from Ashinoaka. So Gloria Ushiwa and Manuela Dawa are the two women who are running the organization. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they have really, for me, shown how much that impact is being lived in their experience. Um, they, as a community of Sapara women, have lived in, in the Amazon for such a long time and for some time they never were in contact with the Western world. Um, but climate change is bringing them, having to bring them out of the rainforest. Um, so it's not just the fact that they cannot uh, get the traditional means for food or like the hunting or the traditional lives are being impacted, but the fact that extractionist uh, practices are coming in. So that forces them to leave just to go and do activism. So I feel like that is kind of one small example of, of the connections there of like the very physical impacts of climate change, um, how they're bringing women out of their of the traditional forms of livelihood in the case of indigenous women, but also uh, in the sense that these practices of extraction also exclude women. You know, they're traditionally more um, uh, kind of gendered and more like men's uh, kind of sort of work. But with that also comes this, the other layer, which is uh, violence against women. So many of the, the stories that I heard from Gloria and Manuela were about the violence, increasing violence from the state and from companies who were trying to come at, have been trying to come into the Amazon to extract illegally. Um, so that means that for them trans translates into um, uh, sexualized violence, um, abuse within the community because men start to feel like pressure to bring in money rather than exchanging of goods mm -hmm. as traditionally done so that creates pressures within the household and that it turns into domestic abuse uh, trafficking children disappearing from the communities um, and also threats to the people who are activists and in this case I, I think they're such a great example as women they felt like they needed to do something so they had to remove themselves from the community in order to do activism so I feel like there this is just this is obviously the example from uh, an indigenous community but I think you know it's it talks up to you about mobility you know, in this case, indigenous women having to leave the rainforest to do activism, but we know also there is impact in terms of like uh, migration and displacement. And also there is this links that uh, relate to like uh, exploitation of women because during those transitions from one country to the other, you know, seeking asylum or safety, there is so much potential to exploitation. Um, and we know that states are, especially the UK with the nationalities and borders bills, are not necessarily doing the work they need to do in order to ensure protection. So we're creating a problem, uh, which is climate change in the global north, affecting the global south, the most uh, vulnerable communities that have the least voices and spaces. And, uh, you know, we are not even able to create the safety. So, you know, I feel like for me, it's that this is the connection, but also it really shows that the women's voices are really missing from the conversation, not in, only in terms of solutions, but also in terms of like the, the, the wide range of impacts that they are seeing uh, across the board. Yeah, and you're right. And definitely um, people are experiencing climate change in different ways. Um, climate change can affect our health, ability to grow food, housing, safety, as you mentioned as well. Safety is a huge part of the um, impact of climate change. Um, and some people are more vulnerable 
to climate change than others. So I think, Natalia, it's fair to say that gender matters in climate change and women should be uh, more involved in decision-making processes and they should be um, heard, like the voices should be heard. You, will, you, will you say that you agree with that? Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. I think um, there was great frustration uh, when Gloria and Manuela were here representing Ashinoak and their community for COP26 in Glasgow, um, because all they wanted was to come so far away from their community to speak to their government to say, please stop this extraction. It's really affecting us. It's destroying our home and it really is destroying our livelihood. And it took such a long trip to come here to talk to their own government. And yet they were not given the pass in order to speak to their government. They were given observer, or observer passes. And it just shows that the decision-making process is really exclusive with something we know, but also the length, because even if they had been given the right pass, the cost of it just taking the airplane out of their community is so high, they need to fundraise. They don't have a, a set organization receiving funds. So, you know, it's all those layers of, of barriers. It's not just having women at the table. It's like, how accessible are those spaces really for the most impacted to have a voice? Yeah, um, and I think um, so far through our conversation, women are being portrayed as a vulnerable gender. Um, that we see women in the aftermath, for uh, for example, of disasters, who are more likely to be displaced, to be sexually assaulted, to be victims of violence, and to face other human rights violations. And in many um, parts of the world, women are more likely than men to conclude formal education early, making them less informed about climate change and about everyday issues and less likely to be involved in decision-making uh, processes that will affect vulnerability at the same time. But even if they do conclude formal education, they are still not involved in decision-making processes. And a very, very recent example, as it was mentioned already, was COP26. Mm -hmm. Women were not there. We were absent. We were not heard. Our voices were not heard. Um, it was dramatically more men women in COP26 and that was a huge problem that I think should be addressed and should be changed in the next COP to come and to the next COPs in general to come and by all means um, we are not more vulnerable simply just because of our gender uh, that's not what I mean but because of a range of factors such as AIDS and ethnicity um, in combination with uh, gender intersect to result in higher vulnerability for women. And I think that recognizing this intersectionality highlights that women are not naturally vulnerable, but there are so many other relations involved and socioeconomic factors, if you wanna call it that way, that result in being more vulnerable. And Angela, I would just love to hear what are your thoughts um, on this, are we being portrayed as vulnerable gender um, based on what was said? Wow, I think I think you've you've covered it beautifully, um, Georgia. Um, I think the question: you know, Are women presented? Are women portrayed as the vulnerable gender? Is a really interesting question, because as you said, it's it's not 
um, it's not a human condition that women are, are you know, inherently um, weaker. It's the vulnerability, women's vulnerability, I think, is, as you've said, the vulnerability is to misogyny. It's to patriarchal norms that contain and constrain women. Um, portraying women as vulnerable, I think, can, can be made is a deliberate construction to suit a particular narrative that allows patriarchal responses about excluding women from public spaces, diminishing and limiting women's voice, diminishing and limiting women's rights and access to land rights, to participation in political processes, to bodily autonomy, to reproductive um, freedom and autonomy. And so, I mean, we're seeing in, you know, across the, the United States, for example, and I, I certainly don't want to speak across Linda's experience here, but, you know, the, the, the decisions around, around abortion, we don't need to just look to the United States, but across Europe. Who's making decisions on women's rights um, to bodily autonomy? Roomfuls of, of men. Yeah. Um, so I think our vulnerability is to social norms, you know, where violence the degradation of women, sexual objectification of women and economic, political and social inequality are normalised. That's the vulnerability. Women are not inherently weaker or more vulnerable, but around the structures within which we live that, that Natalia has, has expressed so eloquently um, result in these, um, in rendering women vulnerable to the, the the outcomes the the effects rather of of those um of those structures yeah and what i can also see from uh what we've discussing so far is that violence against women has increased dramatically for the past few years and especially since covid happened and everyone kind of had to stay in their homes for months and, and not just violence but also we do see in increase or in femicides. Um, and I'll just like to point in here that the Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women defines violence against women as any act of gender-based violence that results in or is likely to result in physical, sexual, or psychological harm or suffering to women, including threats of such acts, oppression, or subject subjective depression of like, uh, like liberty, whether occurring in public or in private life. And now I kind of like want to shift the conversation to Linda um, because I mentioned the term femicide and femicide might be a term that not everyone is familiar with or have heard before. Um, so Linda, would you like to explain to us and to our listeners the term femicide? I, I, I can explain that, but can I first address some of these other issues that yes, have been raised? Yes. Um, first of all, um, what I've seen based on my research is discrimination starts if a woman is even lucky to be born uh, with sex selection and it goes until their death. Since the inception of the UN, they have been discussing this injustice and here we are in 2022, not only in my opinion, continuing to discuss these injustices, which you've mentioned, but in many cases, they've gotten worse. For example, the pandemic had aggravated uh, domestic violence so that women and girls couldn't report it. They couldn't get their services. That has become a appalling 
and that pandemic in its own right. The other thing I would touch on that's sort of been tied into uh, women's rights and climate are the climate itself. Um, women went over the years from being not counted, ignored, to then being considered vulnerable, one of the vulnerable groups, to only recently being heralded as the leaders, innovators, and actually responsible participants in trying to control the climate crisis. So all of a sudden we are now stewards of the environment. Actually, since 1949, we've been described as that, but people tend to forget the historical perspective. Uh, the other two things that I would uh, mention about um, climate and how it affects women, air pollution. Uh, air pollution, the World Health Organization has said 90% of us are breathing unhealthy air. Wildfire smoke is making that air 10 times even more toxic. Who over time has been proven to be more vulnerable to air pollution? One, two, three, all together now, women and girls, all right? The other thing um, that I wanted to give as a graphic example is there was a recent resolution in the United Nations about drowning and how we had to teach in particular women and girls, but children and people how to swim. Women and girls, die more from floods because of drowning, because of the clothing that they're forced to either wear or that because they haven't been taught how to swim. So there's trying to be, a, 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 shall we say, a solution to that particular issue. These are some examples of how I can see discrimination is still going on even and actually even being aggravated by the climate crisis. Uh, I would also wanna say that um, COP26, it's true, women and, and girls and the youth were not represented like they should. But I want to tell you, because I did a summary on this, the women that spoke were phenomenal. Yeah. And in some cases, they went viral. And boy, did I have some fun with what they were saying, because they told it like it was. Yeah. And I was going, you tell them, you tell them, you tell them, during <laughs> the television set. Anyway. <laughs> Femicide, in, uh, what I can say in California is homicide of any person, of course, is illegal. Uh, there can be aggravating circumstances which might lead it to either a death penalty or life without possibility of parole. And one, of course, would be a hate crime. And a hate crime in California can include crimes against a person because of their sex. Uh, femicide is the term of art that has been uh, created to discuss crimes of homicides that the focus is on women. Women are either the majority of the victims or they're the only victims of these type of crimes. And of course, domestic violence is one that's commonly mentioned. One other one, and now that I have some researchers here, perhaps you can take note of this that I think somebody better be covering is there are predators out there like uh, Ted Bundy and Edward Kemper, you might write those two down there, there in the United States, who preyed on women and girls, not because of sex workers, which is a lot of our serial killers are that, not because they were uh, actually even known to them, but because the only reason was they hunted down women and girls because they were women and girls. Yeah. Folks, if that's not the ultimate femicide, I don't know what is. 
And so when I look at the description of femicide, yes, domestic violence, because women and girls are the majority of the victims. There are other crimes, you know, sex workers, women and girls, again, are the majority of the sex workers, although in some cases that's changing. Uh, but I have yet to see serial killers who prey solely on women and girls being discussed. And I think in part because it might be difficult to get the data on that in many countries. I guarantee United States, you could just look up the serial killers and see who they've been preying upon and why. And like I said, Ted, ben, Ted Bundy and Edward Kemper are the two examples that came immediately to mind. Yeah, and you're right. And, and about the data as well, I think it's really hard to kind of like collect it or even research it because some countries do not put it out there. Um, and I just like to draw your attention with uh, two femicides that are committed by uh, through domestic violence. So yes. femicides that are committed by their partners or ex-partners. Yes. And yes. Uh, the reason why I want to focus uh, on this is that I couldn't find through a single research, Google research that I did, a single European country that recognizes the term femicide in their legal system. However, what I could see is that their, um, femicide is an important contributor to homicides, um, as you've already mentioned, but no systematic review exists for femicide globally, providing rates or at least accurate country level estimates of the killing of women because they are women. Um, although there is a systematic review of intimate partner homicide, but this is the closest definition to femicide. Um, so I'll just like to ask you, what do you think from a legal perspective um, based on this? Why is femicide not being a legal term? I, I cannot speak for any jurisdiction other than my own. Um, first of all, you have to include girls in that too, folks. Uh, girls are some of the most vulnerable uh, victims around. I think in California, we're familiar with the term femicide. Uh, we can use the term femicide, but I think in terms of uh, the punishment, uh, if you commit a homicide, we have circumstances in aggravation where we can take into consideration everything from what weapon, if any weapon was used to the motive behind it, was it sex? And if it was, was it because, not only because of women and girls, but because of any lesbian, gay, transgender, I mean, they're, they're there too. So I think that they have up to now thought that this is sufficient tools to be using uh, when you're dealing with this. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. Can I just say, I mean, I wonder as well, is there, is part of this about um, by not giving a name to a problem, then, you know, if you give a, if you name a problem, it means you acknowledge it. You know, if you acknowledge a, a, a if you name a phenomenon, you're acknowledging it. And that requires action and it requires, it forces action and it for, requires action in you know around that that issue so it would require our political and judicial institutions to recognize that the treatment of women um in in our globalized misogynistic <laughs> realities is you know is a real thing and it's a real part of the experience i mean in the uk recently we have had 
the 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 horrors of the murder of the murder of Sarah Everard, a young woman in London, murdered by a serving police officer, who is then described as a bad apple, as though he's a one-off, disregarding that his his nickname from his work colleagues was the rapist. We have other serving police officers who've just been charged and tried following their sharing on social media of the murdered and mutilated bodies of other young women that they were there to protect. So where where is the dignity for those for those young women? Sabina Nessa was murdered in London not very long after Sarah Everard. Um, in fact, 81 women were murdered in the UK in the 21 weeks following Sarah Everard's death. But the policing of that is presented as, well, it's not really an institutional problem. Um, you know, we're looking at 63,000, I think, in the last couple of days, was the figure of, of rape complaints, rape allegations that have not yet been processed through the judicial system. So all of this is a very long way of saying that these that this violence against women is so normalised, yet the response to it and the, the commitment to the elimination of it is not institutionalised. The violence I, is and the outcomes are, but not the response. Yeah, I, I as, as one of the advocates for stopping any type of violence against women, I, I'm proud to say that in my own area, um, we have not had anything like you've mentioned, N nothing, no, our law enforcement are good and they, they try to do the best they can. However, in California, we did have, uh, we call him the uh, Night Stalker, the original Night Stalker. He is the one that started out just breaking in and getting panties, then raping, and then uh, killing women and killing couples, which is the reason why you can't say that he is just focused in on women. He also was brazen enough to focus in on couples, but he had been a police officer for a period of time. And then he was let go when they found that he was stealing something from a store. Uh, he was fired. Boom. End of story. And he pretty much disappeared from our horizon. And what's interesting, and there's another guy named the BTK killer, uh, who he again preyed on women, but variety of different types of women. Uh, both of them were able to go under and not surface and not commit any known crimes for decades after, which to me is kind of scary too, how you can turn it on and off. But globally, the UN has recognized not only femicide, but has recognized that it's not necessarily being implemented as it should be recognized as it should be. Um, I, would, I would direct you to the UNODC, which has, they have regular uh, reports on femicide and regular reports on what's being done throughout the world to try and remedy all of the issues that you mentioned. Um, it makes for a very interesting reading. They also do reports on trafficking and other you know, crimes against children, uh, which you'll find very informative. And I'll, I'll just like to add on um, here in the conversation that Grace did experience a very high increase in femicides uh, for the past year and a half. In 2021, I believe we had either 18 or 19. All of them were committed by husbands, ex-husbands, partner or ex-partners. Um, and the media 
played a huge role uh, with the portrayal of the victim, that was a woman. In many cases, she was being portrayed as a person who was asking for it. She was portrayed as a person that she abandoned him, she divorced him. And when they were talking about reasonings as if there is a reason to um, either abuse some or, or kill them, um, they were giving a reason of that he was jealous or she was about to leave him. And in many cases, the parents of the person that committed femicide were going on news and they were saying, my child is the best child in the world. She was asking for it. Um, she was the bad person in the picture. And the media were just sitting there and hearing all of this stuff um, and transmitting that to hundreds of people and children at the same time, giving the impression that women should be afraid, that women should not wear um, short skirts or dresses, or we should not walk at night by ourselves just to go at our back home. So I feel like the media played a really huge role in the portrayal of women. And I feel that that should not be the case. Like when we hear such things, we should call them out mm-hmm. as they eat, as they are. That's yeah. why I feel like there is a need for femicide to be a legal term so we can use it in court. We have to give it a name because it's not just a civil homicide. It's because my partner um, abused me. Uh, either for so many years or just a one-night thing, but I ended up not being alive anymore. Don't call it homicide, it is femicide. I was a female and I was murdered because I'm a woman. Um, what, I, what, I, what, I, what I would say, what we have done in jury selection, which dovetails into one of the issues that you just raised, is when we voidir the juries, we ask them if we have a woman or a girl and the defense is even thinking about raising, oh, she asked for it, it was the way she was dressed, or whatever, whatever. we voideer them on those issues to see what their thoughts are and whether they could be a fair and impartial juror. So we start educating people from jury duty on. Um, we cannot control the press. The press is a separate entity and I believe that that should be definitely the case. Uh, but maybe we should have some press people in the Voidir box and start questioning them during Voidir. <laughs> Can I add here, um, I'm also quite interested in terms of femicide um, and the links to climate change, um, because it's true that there is a, obviously there's a lot of, of, of femicide related to uh, relationships, but there's also now a femicide related to frontline defenders. Um, so we can just mention yes. as an example, the missing number of women, indigenous women yes. in, in North America, yes. um, which is obviously linked with like a, a sexual exploitation. Um, it's linked with like the discrimination that indigenous women will experience, not just as women, but also as indigenous. So they are like almost completely dehumanized as women that can be murdered and disappeared and nobody will be responding for them. Um, but also, you know, the recent cases in recent years uh, in, I'm thinking Latin America, of uh, defenders of the land that have been murdered um, as a way to silence this activism that, you know, is, needs to happen in our environment. But the position of women has been 
extremely vulnerable. And I feel there's a connection as well in general with activist women. Um, there is uh, this uh, aggression and violence that comes from, you know, online digitally, like trolling, um, you know, sexual harassment, stalking. But for some women, that would be added the layer of murder. There's many women who will not run for political office anymore around the world because of what they have endured personally, their family, even perhaps in some cases their community, but certainly them or their family. Uh, human rights defenders and climate, the numbers are increasing, men and women, but women especially. You're right on that. Canada has is among the countries that has had some real problems mm -hmm. with serial killing of indigenous women. Uh, yeah. 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 And I think what does that tell us about in terms of representation, what we were talking earlier on, we need to involve women, we need women's voices, but when women who are the most marginalized because of their ethnicity or other characteristics try to step up to say, here is what I want, this is our solution, the silencing goes all the way to murder. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, you know, it's a very, it's, it's a very deep problem that you know, they cannot even get there sometimes because the threats on their lives are so real. So you know, there's some problems there that are so, you know, yeah. we need to address. I, yeah. I think what I, what I did is I did one presentation, it was in Vienna where I said, women are discriminated again from even before they're born to when they die. And I think the most powerful thing you all can do because you're both all very eloquent and very knowledgeable is to educate anyone around you um, about these issues, because I believe when people get educated, and this is coming from someone who's seen some of the worst homicide scenes that a person can see, I believe that when a person is educated and understands the issues, they want to do the right thing. For the most part, the majority of these people want to do the right thing. It's just you've got to get them educated and also I think have it affect them where they are. Like I'm going to talk about domestic violence. Um, Georgia hasn't gotten to it yet, but like victims of domestic violence before they were killed, a number of them would be interviewed by people, by press, by police, by even the courts. And they'd say, I don't wanna go forward with charges. And it would be odd because their affect would just, they would not have any affect. Their memory would be horrible. And so people would just dismiss them. Enter head injuries. God bless sports. They've done something good via that. They are now explaining head injuries can cause all of these in significant degrees. And it's something that the poor person will live with for the rest of their life. So now if you educate people about the head injuries and what it can cause with respect to domestic violence, first of all, a lot of people will go, I did not sign up for this. I did not sign up, you know, maybe you, I figure, okay, you can knock me around, but head injuries that will, that will have this type of impact on my life or my children? No, I did not sign up for this. And when you educate the public about this and all of a sudden they see a victim who seems to not care, doesn't have the proper affect or doesn't have the memory, you explain to them how many times they've been, it can only take one hit, head injury, and, and they can have this forever. And all of a sudden people, I call it sort of aha moment, all of a sudden they go, yes, now I understand. And yes, now we're far more eager to give them a lot more leeway when we know that. Yeah, it's actually um, really um, not interesting, but it's worth noting that many of the victims of domestic violence that either that, that domestic violence has 
uh, ended up with a femicide, sadly, or it's just like they're lucky enough to still be alive. Yeah. Um, the domestic violence is not just a one night thing or a one day thing, but it can happen throughout weeks, throughout months, and even years. Like a person, a woman can endure domestic violence for years yeah. and not even speak about it. Or even when she does, people are not taking her seriously. Okay. Or sometimes um, the police or the people that are there to protect us take so long to respond to just one call of a neighbor that just happened to hear, for example, my scream because my partner uh, was abusing me and I feel that that's also important to put it out there and discuss it uh, uh, with you today that domestic violence is not just something that can happen one time if it happens one time it will happen again and again and again until we speak about it and also there are um, some people that are afraid to talk about it um, or not just the event, but just to open up their hearts and their experiences to someone, even if that someone is a friend or a family. But it is extremely important to remember that a time is not too late. If you feel that you will, uh, you experienced domestic violence back in 2000, and now it's 2022, and you feel now is the right time to talk about it, you should talk about it, but you should talk about it whenever you're ready. But at the same time, the world is here um, to listen to your experiences. We are here to help and make change the world, make a difference. And California, they did. And that's what, one thing that I'm proud of being the part of the law enforcement and prosecutors that did that is domestic violence went from, this is decades ago, the 50s, whatever, you know, good old boy, you know, boys will be boys too. Now we have some of the toughest laws and toughest, you know, protocols in the world on domestic violence uh, because we we did a number of things. The law enforcement from, from the police that go to the response to the neighbors, mm -hmm. to the helplines, to all of that, um, it all came about with legislation and with people like you in your areas making people aware of, you know, that nice neighbor next door to you that you think is so lucky and, and, and so forth and so on is being beaten on a regular basis. And it's all they can do to, they'll be beaten rather than their children. They hope, I mean, all of a sudden you open people's eyes to what's around them. And I, like I said, when people are educated, the majority of them want to do the right thing. Yeah. And I also truly think that in the countries that are the most affected by climate change, and um, women will see an increase in domestic violence yes. as well. And yes. they will feel more afraid to talk about their experiences because they might feel that it is their failure, that they cannot collect water, they cannot provide food uh, for the family. Um, so, and it's something that Natalia also uh, talked about, that uh, there are extreme links between gender and the environment as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and um, if I can just add as well, like in terms of education, like also 
honing into the fact that most of the domestic abuse will happen uh, emotionally. And in that sense, uh, Scotland's legislation that was introduced uh, a couple of years ago that criminalized coercive control is so important. But obviously, it's, that's just one part, it's the legislation. But it's also like understanding for the whole system, for the whole criminal justice system of what that looks like, because in many ways, well, this is hidden abuse. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be obvious. You're not going to hear uh, your neighbor yelling. It can be very subtle. So there is obviously this public awareness that needs to, to grow. And I know uh, organizations in Scotland are doing some of that work um, yeah. of what that looks like so that we are all aware that, you know, a friend might be experiencing domestic abuse but it not might be what we are generally associate domestic abuse with. Mm -hmm. um, and also the importance of creating the safe routes to disclosure. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that's why I, I would say it's so important to have specialist support available. And, and that's another, I think, barrier in terms of what governments do, because a lot of the times there is so funding issues for this for, for this especially support or a trauma trauma practice trauma for practice is put to the side uh, when it's something's important and in the end there is a connection if women are experiencing you know different effects of climate change and and you know gender-based violence in general but they are not able to talk about it because of trauma you know how are we expecting them to come and have a seat at the table again so you know it's all these these things where i think you know as women having received, you know, being so uh, victims of gender-based violence on a re regular basis, um, these are not taken into consideration when a lot of men sit in the room and they decide this is how they're gonna solve the things for us without thinking about, you know, all of these different issues that actually we need and that we've been saying for years. Mm. And that's right. And I'll just like to know, Angela, in, in your perspective, um, how violence against women impact um, on our realization of women's rights. Oh, I mean, it's. It, it, <laughs> um, You're getting the questions, Angela. Yeah, you you go for the straightforward questions, Georgia. Um, gosh, there, I mean, there's just so much um, in in what uh, Natalia and Linda have been saying. Um, I mean, violence against women. <laughs> is I mean in, in Scotland again as Natalia will be very familiar um colleagues in, in the violence against women sector and, and advocacy talk about um gender-based violence as a cause and consequence of women of gender inequality. And and it absolutely is. Um, and I think we need to expand that as well into um what of a very dear friend who's who's no longer here, um, a colleague here from um Glasgow Caledonian University, Professor Ilsa Mackay. Ilsa was a professor of economics and she used to talk about whether we were talking about economics or public policy and and how you know the relationship between different elements of public policy, different economic um, uh, you know, ways of thinking about the economy. It's just to talk about a question of values, and and I, I that has been I think one of my kind of guiding thoughts all the way through all of this. That's it's a question of values, and if we're not valuing women's status, if we're not valuing women's testimony, if we're not valuing women's voices, whether it's that seventy percent of the speaking time at COP was male voices, whether we're not valuing women's um, testimony of their their experiences and that those 
that testimony it has to somehow or other be sensationalized rather than normalized for it to be to be believed. And that's where I think some of the images of the very early zero tolerance campaigns in Scotland with Frankie Raffles that were black and white photographs of women in everyday situations that made the point that Linda has just made and Natalia have made about the, you know, women in everyday situations. You know, it, it is your neighbour through the wall or up the stairs or the woman across the street, um, whatever else you might think about her social um, and economic position. Um, but I wonder as well, I mean, the the silencing of women that we've talked about, that silencing of women politically, you know, where women of colour particularly um, receive such um, constant and consistent abuse because they have dared to present themselves um, for political office and public life. And that silencing of women's experience of, of abuse further renders women vulnerable to that abuse and to that exclusion. And that's that's the cycle I think we need to be to be breaking. And where Me Too and other campaigns globally, some of the big institutionally driven campaigns, whether that's from the UN, all of these are making positive contributions to what Linda's been talking about in terms of that public awareness, public education, um, and taking people with us. That, you know, <laughs> that this is these are the conversations we need to have with our sons with our our fathers our brothers our friends um because women's equality and and the realization of women's human rights is not for women to do it has to be a collective project and that has to be about men taking some responsibility for male violence against women and you know that's not for us to fix by ourselves <laughs> absolutely no. it takes a village <laughs> I would like to add something uh, to Angela's excellent uh, points and Natalia's excellent points. Based on, again, my research uh, from the early times of the UN, they were always concerned about making women have equal access to the economic services as well as education. Ladies, if you're interested, I'll give you the site later. Uh, as early as the 50s or 60s, they were talking about giving women equal access to land tenure, mm -hmm. right? You own land, you, you have already a good economic presence because mm -hmm. you can get credit more easily. You can do all of these things, especially dealing with climate crisis far more easily. Hello, we're still talking about still women talking and girls about having it. land tenure. And so again, you know, when I was doing my research, I'm going, you know, there's been soaring rhetoric over the decades yeah. about what women are entitled to. It's a, their human right, equal access. Now it's sort of like, and this is very abrupt language for the UN, time's up, time's up. No more soaring rhetoric. As one UN representative said, I fear that we may be looked at as no more than a band with symbols and uh, symbols. And I think it was drums or something like a bell, symbols and bells. No one's gonna take us seriously. Yeah. Right. And the woman that we're speaking in Coke 26 <laughs> spoke about that, too. Yeah. Um, do you remember there was one speaker said, you know, every year we're here. It was indigenous too. Mm -hmm. every year we're here. We see the airplanes land. We see the people get off their private airplanes. They go to the meeting. They make all these wonderful promises. They go home and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have to go with also having them have the empowerment and equal access to economic, cultural, political, social, 
mm-hmm. development. Absolutely, and to keep calling them out, to keep calling them out, that the warm words, the soaring rhetoric um, is not prote- is not protecting women from femicide. It's not no, securing no. women's um, economic equality um, and political participation. So um, so thanks again to Georgia for, for providing this opportunity for calling some of it out. Yes. And if I can add as well, I feel like there's a need for, for solidarity among women because I feel like, Absolutely. you know, this recognition that everybody experiences climate change differently and like intersectionality is very good, but we need to be in practice more solid, like, so, you know, have more solidarity with each other. Because I think in terms of what you were saying, Linda, about land tenure, mm-hmm. um, so Gloria Manuela from Ashinoaca came to COP to, as part of this, you know, event to say our land is ours mm-hmm. from, you know, the, the trees to the, the oil underneath, everything belongs to us. The government rhetoric is that everything underneath the land belongs to the government and everything above to indigenous people, but that doesn't work because, you know, you, you take one, you kill the rest. And I feel like there needs to be more solidarity when, when, when women are, are claiming their land back. And that's part for me, that's part of things that are missing, but there is definitely, I think, space for us to build that solidarity and to stand really together with other women when they are coming to call out these things, not just at call, but in general, yeah. to really stand next to them and say, yes, we, we are with you. And I feel sometimes here's, that's lacking. Yeah. Here's what we researchers can do, which is what, what I, that's why I said, I said, why has it been taking so long? I can, for example, I can give you now the history, historical citations where any one particular issue has been mentioned over time. And that will make your argument far more powerful if you can say, hello, we've been talking about this for 75 years. Let's let's take a walk down memory lane, you and I. <laughs> let, let, let's do this. Now, I'm not going to do this because I'm 72 and I'm happy in my own little world. But you, the Angel, the leader, and Georgia, and you, Natalia, I'd be delighted, you know, to help you take them on a walk down memory lane. And that's how, in my opinion, I can show solidarity with all of you. Yeah. All right. I have a, I have a, a, apparently a talent that I can share with others to make the point that I'm grumbling at the television set on a daily basis. <laughs> I'm with you on that one, Linda. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And, and that's great. And I'll, I'll just like to um, conclude this lovely conversation that we're having this evening um, by basically asking the question, and this can go to whoever wants to answer it, or, or if all three of you want to answer it, feel free to do so. Um, I'm finding sometimes difficult to explain it to my mom, who is almost turning 60 uh, now, uh, the term of uh, femicide that is, is result, a result of domestic violence and climate change uh, or what are the links between women and the environment because my mom was born in a time where these things were not discussed um, they were not a thing on television or in discussions between friends or family and now that is 2022 and I'm me um, I have a voice that likely I'm using. Um, I did my bachelor in environmental management and I'm doing my master's in climate justice. I know things that she doesn't and I'm trying to educate. But me being 24, I'm finding difficult um, to explain it to her. 
um, the difference and the significance there is to call things by their name. Um, yeah. So I, I'll just like to ask whoever wants to uh, give. I'll start. Advice. I'll start, but yeah, I'm sure I'm not going to be the one that finishes. And this is what we would do again on Voidir. Um, with your mother, well, we wouldn't do it this this personally, but with your mother, what you could say is, well, mother, you you've taught me, you know, that 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 women and girls shouldn't be hurt. Yes. You've taught me that we should protect women and girls from being hurt. Yes. So if someone comes to you and says, I'm going to hit that girl down the street because she's a girl how can I not follow your, your directive? How can I not go and protect that girl? In other words, you have to bring it to almost her neighborhood and remind her of how active she's been or how caring she is about her neighbors and how would she react if they were a victim only because of their sex or in this case, age too, my dear, you've got to go, you got to go with the age angle with your mother. Okay. We, we of that tribal generations, are very sensitive because we are growing in number and we are because you're getting older unless you're really buffing and you know weighing 250 pound weights you know you may be more vulnerable to being attacked or people may think they're more vulnerable to being surprised but they may think you're more vulnerable and for her that would be wrong too and that's why you make you make her you make her agree to the basics. And if she agrees to the basics, can I have some popcorn and watch how she dodges out of <laughs> the conclusion? Please. No, I'm just joking. Go, go ahead. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if anybody else wants to jump in here and say something um, for the conclusion of the conversation or a piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't presume to advise you on 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 your conversation with your with your mum, but I recognise it. I recognise that the conversation that I've had with with many people, and they're very often the most difficult conversations to have with with family members. You know, it's a lot easier to address a conference of hundreds than it is to have some difficult conversations with people who are, you know, much more proximate. But I think it's about that process that Linda and Natalia have talked about, one of solidarity and one of kindness. Mm -hmm. um, but also of reminding and very often reminding women that it's women who do the provisioning for the household, for the family. It's women who carry most of the unpaid care that supports the so-called productive economy. Um, and it's women that are most affected by the structural deliberate inequalities of you know, unequal pay, unequal status in the labour market, inequality in uh, that kind of household provisioning and th within that or, or in addition to that, you know, the access to that colleagues have talked about in terms of access to land rights and so on. And so that that's the everyday for for women. Yes, we've come very far. We have lots of formal laws and equality, but women still carry that every day. And as we trash the climate more and more, as we trash the planet rather more and more, women are left to clean that up as well as cleaning up every other kind of mess. Um, and so I think, you know, women make the world. Um, and so we need to value women and we need to value the world that we make. I, I totally agree. Um, with whatever you have just said so far. 
and I would just like to wrap up this podcast episode um, with a round of a few quick questions. So the way that works is I'm going to ask each of you two questions and you have to answer fast. No thinking. Um, here, just give me your best answer on the spot. Are you ready? Oh, that's a challenge. Oh, yay, yay. <laughs> of the heavy weight of our conversation so far. Um, so, Angela, what makes you feel inspired? Wow. Um, an hour like this, spending time with engaged, committed, funny, kind women is really inspiring. If I can give you a beatboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Me again? Yeah. Um, I'll go with values. I'll go with it's a question of values. That's great. And a question mark and folk can work out what their values are. That's great. Natalia, what makes you feel inspired? Um, I think, yeah, conversations, but also spaces where um, multiple voices can be heard in a kind way, because I feel sometimes that's lacking. <laughs> that's great. If I can offer you a project with no rules, no constraints, what project would you do? Uh, I definitely feel like for Scotland in particular, I would love to have a project where multiple migrant women can collaborate and like a space to discuss where the issues are affecting us um, and how we can move forward. I feel like a lot of the times there's no money to do that kind of project for migrant women. That sounds great. I think you should definitely go for it. That sounds <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Linda, what makes you feel inspired? I would say that it's being surrounded by people who step up to protect and serve. They don't run away. Um, and that's everything from Seroptimist International, United Nations, to law enforcement, the people that I've been honored to know, the ju justice system that I've been honored to be part of, and even the sailing community where I'm part of. Uh, they will go to rescue and protect. Uh, they show solidarity and kindness. Well, all of your answers have been great. You have amazed me. Um, Lita, if in 100 years there's nothing left on this planet, right, but one book about your life, what do you think the title will be? <laughs> good one. It, 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 it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, that might be one title or kindness is, <laughs> kindness is everything. Kindness is everything. That's great, actually. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I have indeed learned a lot from you today. Um, and thank you to the listeners for tuning in and listening as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Georgia. Thank you. It's been an honour to be here. In case you want to contact the National Domestic Abuse Helpline in the UK, you can call for free and in confidence 24 hours a day on 0808-2000-247. In an emergency situation, please call 999 in the UK or 112 that can be dialed from a mobile phone anywhere in the world. You can also find additional resources and support in the description of this episode. Please take care of yourself and if you need to, don't be afraid to reach out and ask for help.